Welcome to the Insurgents Podcast with Frank Viola. And he's brought a friend. This is the podcast that supplements Frank's groundbreaking book, Insurgents, Reclaiming the Gospel of the Kingdom, which is shaking up the Christian world. You can find out details about the book at insurgents.org. Sit back, open all four ears, physical and spiritual, and join the insurgents. Here's Frank. Welcome to another edition of the Insurgents podcast. This is the podcast that kills more viruses than Clorox and Lysol combined. And I have today with me Nicholas, who, if you're not new to the podcast, you've heard many times. How you doing? Good morning, Frank. Great to be back. And um, I'm feeling moderately comfortable since we're about 130 miles apart from one another. <laughs> you will not infect me. And vice versa. <laughs> moderately comfortable. All right. And our listeners should not be at risk as well because everything has been disinfected on top of our distancing. I'm even wearing gloves and a mask. As <laughs> Good. Okay. So we are still taking questions from listeners. And wow, we've done over 60 episodes already, uh, in including my other conversation partners. And the questions keep coming in, which I think is terrific. What do you have today? Two questions today, perhaps three. And if we don't get to all three of them, we'll bleed over into the next episode. So here's the first one. This may be a stupid question. Oh, and by the way, there's no such thing as a stupid question. There are only stupid people who ask questions. Right. And stupid podcast co-hosts. <laughs> <laughs> I am totally joking. This is actually a great question. What is the difference between koinonia and ecclesia? So do you want to start off on that or do you want me to start off on that? Yeah, go ahead and I'll just pepper in as, as I see fit. This is a probably two topics or two words and topics near and dear to both of our hearts. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Ecclesia. It's funny because as an author, you write a book or you put out a message, and there's some part of your psyche that thinks, okay, this is going to now forevermore solve the problem. There's going to be no confusion about this issue at all. <laughs> and when you do that, uh, on an unconscious level, you're, you're dreaming, okay? You're dreaming big, because even though I have addressed this many times, I still see it everywhere, in writings, on blogs, and articles, and of course, on social media. And by that I'm referring to this misnomer that the word ecclesia means called out ones. It does not mean called out ones. It didn't mean that in the first century. And I understand where that came from, and I don't want to go down that rabbit hole, but in the first century, the word ecclesia did not mean called out ones. It actually meant an assembly, all right? It meant a bringing together of a group of people into the same space. The other translations of the word, which are perfectly accurate, would be a meeting, a gathering. It was used for the Greek assembly in the first century where those in the community were called forth, called forth from their private lives to meet or assemble in the town forum to make decisions for their city. Consequently, the word also carries the flavor of every member participation in decision making. So ecclesia is a community of people who gather together, who possess a shared life in Christ. I'm talking about the way that Paul used it in the other 
writers of the New Testament. As such, the ecclesia is a visible, touchable, locatable, and tangible reality. You can visit it, you can observe it, and you can live in it. I just quoted from Eternity to Here, pages 230 to 231, which obviously did not set the record straight everywhere. I'm <laughs> I'm mortified. I know, right? Why write a book if it's not going to change anything? But hopefully this podcast episode will make a dent in it. And of course, as you know, when we read the word church in the New Testament, which is the common way that ecclesia is translated, what immediately pops into our heads is a building with a steeple on it, a Sunday morning service, a denomination, a pastor, pulpit, pews, the sermon, or all the Christians in the entire world. And that's not what ecclesia meant. It was a local assembly where people gathered together we're not social distancing, but they actually gather together as a people. What say you? Yeah, that's good. I think, first of all, just commenting on the terminology, you know, every once in a while, we really need to change a vocabulary word that we're using because an existing word has become so distorted or so overused to the point that it's almost rendered meaningless. And I think ecclesia is is one of these words that that we ought to seriously consider substituting for church just because of the incredible baggage. In fact, I'm, I'm even sitting here trying to think of a word that we Christians use and that appears in Scripture that has more baggage than the word church. So I think ecclesia is a great choice. I mean, it's the original choice, of course. Oddly enough, the one term that we used in our house growing up in a Greek household, this was the term that was used to unfortunately, to go to church. But, you know, it's it's a term that I think could provide some freshness into the whole concept of what we mean when we're when we're talking about the church. Mm-hmm. Um, and I like that you emphasize the the localness of this. When Paul's using this in his letters or when it's being referenced in the book of Acts, it's usually almost exclusively, almost all the time, referencing an actual physical locatable gathering of people that if you showed up in that city, you could be with those people. That's right. And I think that's really important. I think that's, it, it's like a glossed over distinction, but the ramifications of that are, I think, incredibly powerful in terms of, you know, adjusting or even revolutionizing our understanding of what the ecclesia is supposed to be. You know, it's, it's Jim and Bob and Mary and Jane. And I mean, Mm-hmm. That's what ecclesia was. When Paul was writing letters to the ecclesia, th- those were faces and names that he had going through his his head, yes, and through his mind as he's penning these letters, you know, to a very specific gathering of people. Anyway, um, so yeah, ecclesia is, and it does have a secular even in Paul's day. Uh, Frank, you probably have written or talked about this. Has and it's not anything that really we need to go into here, but it does have a secular counterpart in the first century. And Paul simply lifted it and used it for the gathering. That's right. Primarily the Greek assembly, where they would come together, being called forth from their private homes to meet in the town forum and make decisions for the city. And that's, that's in effect what it meant. There's also a place in Acts that talks about a group of people coming together, not Christians now, just people in the city, I believe it was the city of Ephesus, and they all gathered together in one place, and Luke, the writer of Acts, uses the word ecclesia, because it's an assembly, it's a meeting together. Just to make one point about 
your comments regarding the local nature of this, and, and you're dead on, it's always used, virtually always used, to refer to a local gathering, a local group of people who meet together regularly, and the meeting itself is called ecclesia. There are a few places in the book of Ephesians where it is used to refer to the heavenly assembly of God's people. Yes. And even there, though, it's talking about in heavenly places, there is the reality of the ecclesia, but it's still a gathering. It's still a meeting. You know, it's not all the Christians separated all over the world. It's never used that way, which is the common way it's used today. People say church. Oh, the church. Well, what are you talking about, the church? What church are you talking about? And of course, in their minds, it's all the Christians in the world. Well, Paul never uses it that way. And in Ephesians, when it's talking about ecclesia in a spiritual sense, beyond the local borders of the cities of that day, he's talking about in the heavenlies. There is the gathering of the ecclesia in the heavenlies. And one of the foremost scholars who brings this out who kind of broke ground on this was Robert Banks. And he wrote a book a number of years ago. It's been recently revised called Paul's Idea of Community. It's phenomenal. And he goes into how this word was used in the first century and then also how it's used in the New Testament. And it is, um, it's indisputable. I've always looked at this term, at least this is the picture that's always come to my mind when you use the word assembling. Um, I think of a puzzle and, you know, all the pieces of the puzzle are in a box and you take them out and you assemble them together and they reveal an image. Mm -hmm. You can't do that if the pieces are scattered all over the globe. If, you know, if I have a couple pieces here at my house, you have some pieces at your house and, you know, you can't, there's no assembling. Mm -hmm. And, and so we're literally talking about the assembling of the parts pieces of Jesus Christ himself in a particular location. And and I think that word assembling also kind of helps drive home and reinforce the concept that this is local. I, you can't assemble things that are scattered all over the place. Yeah, that's right. And there you've, you have articulated one of the main purposes of why the ecclesia assembles, according to the New Testament. And in Reimagining Church, I use that exact image of the puzzle pieces coming together. It's to display Christ. And none of us as an individual can display the fullness of Christ. But in a local body of believers where everyone is functioning, everyone is participating, sharing their portion of the Lord, then you step back and you see the image of Jesus in different aspects, in different shades, in different portraits. But it's him. And that is one of the main purposes of what the New Testament envisions as an ecclesia meeting, a church meeting, the open participatory meeting, which, again, unfortunately, in the day in which we're recording this is very, very rare. Both Frank and I have had the privilege of several times, at least, maybe many times, of witnessing the assembling of the ecclesia in the way that Frank just described and the only thing that I can say about that is it is one of the most breathtaking sights and incredible experiences to have when all of what Frank just described is going on and you have a healthy, vibrant expression of a local ecclesia and people are functioning and, you know, operating in just their natural state that the Lord has created them. And they're gathered together with the intention of revealing 
the multifaceted Christ, and to to witness that is the birthright of every Christian, ought to be the experience of every Christian, and um, sadly, it's pretty rare. And by the way, you know, I think some in our listening audience are trying to understand what we just said concerning what an assembly of the ecclesia looks like. If, in fact, we've never experienced something that someone else is articulating, we filter it through whatever we understand that could be. So, for example, I think some people are thinking of a Bible study, right, where everyone's sharing their thoughts on whatever they're studying in the Bible. That's not what we're talking about at all. No, no. In fact, that's another question, uh, Nicholas, that we'll address a little later. It has to do with Bible study in a gathering. But even so, I do think there will come a time when the Lord will breathe again like he did in the past, and we will see those who are specifically called and equipped to raise up and equip these kinds of gatherings, these ecclesias, which is a necessary aspect when it comes to actually seeing such a group come into existence and function. God's people, whether they're new converts or they're seasoned Christians, have to be equipped to be able to function in this way. You know, it doesn't just happen automatically, especially if anybody's been in the institutional church for any length of time. If you put such a group of people in a room and say, okay, start functioning the way that the New Testament describes, you're not really going to see that. You will Um, mostly sit around and stare at one another. Yeah, and someone who is uncomfortable with the vacuum of silence, who is a leader type, will begin to speak and speak and speak and And basically, you're going to have a scaled-down version of what you see on Sunday morning. So there is that element of God's people being equipped and those who are specifically called and trained and have experience to be able to do that equipping. And until those people are unleashed once again, we're not going to really see this a lot, I believe. And I don't think we're seeing it right now. Now, there's lots of groups of Christians that are meeting in homes that are trying to do this. I don't dispute that. And I don't dispute that some of those home meetings may be touching some of this from time to time. But coming back to what the Lord is doing, what I believe he's doing, some of this can be touched in the kingdom cells that we've talked about and that I describe in insurgents. And I think right now, while we may have the hope of being part of an ecclesia like it's envisioned in the New Testament, we can get together with one or two. I think that's within the realm of possibility for every believer who's listening to this. One other person, that's all it takes to begin gathering as a kingdom cell. And of course, we've talked about how to do that and what to do in those meetings in the past. But we're talking about what the New Testament meant when it used the term ecclesia. And then the other part of the question had to do with koinonia. That's right. Koinonia. Once you start us off there, what is koinonia? What does that word mean? How is it different from ecclesia? Yeah, well, it's again, it's another Greek word, um, and it's a, it's a great word to use. It appears about 20 or so times, uh, depending on which version of the Bible you use, in the New Testament. Um, and it does seem to, to be largely a New Covenant type of um, articulation, a word that, that seems to be mostly in the New Covenant written by the New Testament writers. So about 20 times, and almost every time, roughly probably 75% of the time, it is referring to the idea 
uh, or if, if you were seeing it translated into an English word, it would be fellowship, which itself kind of has multiple prongs to it. And we can, we can talk about that in a minute. Um, it also can refer to sharing, which it does on several occasions. And even maybe once or twice, it means participation or contribution. Um, and uh, Frank, you may be able to speak to more specifically to, to some of these, but I think probably the, the one that's worth paying the most attention to would be the first one of fellowship and um, intimacy, you know, an exchange between two people. You know, one of the most striking and my personal favorite uses of koinonia is in First uh, John, right there at the beginning in chapter one. And I'm just going to read it. And what was from the beginning, what we have heard, what we have seen with our eyes, what we beheld and our hands handled concerning the word of life and the life was manifested. And we have seen and bear witness and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the father and was manifested to us. What we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also that you also may have koinonia with us. And indeed, our koinonia is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And these things we write so that our joy may be made complete. So right there, you know, in your, in your English translation, you would see the word fellowship. But it is koinonia in the original and... Um, it's just such a beautiful passage, and uh, there Koinonia is referring to intimate fellowship between the Father and the Son, and then us being brought into that intimate fellowship and joining their Koinonia, and so we're now we've now entered into their Koinonia, and we have Koinonia with them, and then because of that we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom mm -hmm. we are compelled to do it mm -hmm. um and i don't mean compelled by law i mean compelled by beauty and love and joy and all the things that we're touching and knowing in that koinonia that belongs to the father and the son and so we proclaim it and i love what john says we proclaim this to you so that our joy may be made complete so it's not about a numerical expansion and a mandate to evangelize and win people. It's about expanding the koinonia, and that's what increases the joy, is as others come into that same fellowship. And it's interesting, Frank, that at least as I understand this passage, the koinonia that you and I might have, or that I might have with any of God's people, and you just mentioned a few minutes ago about you know, kingdom cells, and they're just being one or two, right? So koinonia, this intimate fellowship can exist between one or two. Or That's three. right. That's right. But it's all predicated on us having koinonia with the father and the son first. That's what makes koinonia between humans possible. So you can't have true koinonia with another human being unless you have been brought into the koinonia of the father and the son. Yeah, I agree with that. And I think the word can also be translated communion. Yes. A couple observations about the word koinonia. One, it's, uh, as you pointed out, it, it has a measure of intimacy. It's an intimate word. You know, it's not a, a stale, distancing 
robotic term. When we talk about having koinonia, there's, there's closeness, there's intimacy, there's even friendship involved. Right. The other thing is it's an active word. So we don't have koinonia just by sitting in a room together. There needs to be an exchange. And this gets into why it also refers to sharing or contribution. You know, if if you and I are uh, talking about the Lord, we're having koinonia. If we share our struggles, we're having koinonia. If we help each other with resources, whether it's financial yeah. or yeah or material, that's koinonia. So it's an active word. Yes. The other thing is it's it's not an individualistic word. You cannot have koinonia with yourself, right? <laughs> Another being must be involved. Yeah. We can have koinonia with the Lord. We can have communion with God. We can have communion with one another. And this is true for the Lord as well. You know, right. God cannot seem to get along without being three people. So he himself, as a Trinitarian community, is having koinonia constantly and eternally. Father and Son, through the Holy Spirit, are having that interchange or having that participation or having that mutual pouring out into one another. And so when we read Acts 2.42, for example, the birth of the ecclesia in Jerusalem, we're told that they devoted themselves, meaning the members of the ecclesia, to the apostles' teaching and to koinonia and to the breaking of bread and to prayer. And so what's happening within God himself within the community of the Godhead is spills over into us. And I think this is one of the reasons why we really find well-being, we really find joy, we really find contentment in relationship to other believers around Christ himself. Right. We're built for koinonia, and without it, we shrivel up and die spiritually. And in other ways, too, emotionally and mentally. Yeah, absolutely. I was thinking that as you were saying that, like our entire well-being on every level is actually issues forth from this koinonia that we're talking about. Um, We are just hardwired for other people and not just other people in the sense of I just I'm a social creature. I need to be around other people. There is a specific flow here that you're describing that's going on and it's divine in origin and it flows into us and then in us and and then through us and then on to brothers and sisters in Christ and vice versa. And it's that which we really relish and need when we have a rich time of what we call fellowship with people. Sometimes what we're, we're really just saying is there's been this flow of the Lord that's come to us an in an intimacy and it's, it's come into us, it's flowed up to the brim, it's spilled out and over, and it's happened with other people in our presence. And so there's this exchange going on, and it is a very active thing. And I also think when it comes to fellowship, communion, koinonia, there are different levels, right, that we can engage in it with another believer. And in another place, I, I did a teaching and a conference on the five levels. I'll give you a kind of a, a, and our listeners, a peek into what that is, although I, this would not be the order that I used. But 
there's one level, for example, is sharing our stories with one another. You know, this is that kind of somewhat surface level where we're just telling each other about our history, our testimony, what's gone beforehand. Then there's another level where we're sharing in a service. For example, maybe we're helping people in in the city in which we live, you know, uh, during this virus crisis, for example. Then there's another level, which is even deeper, and that's where we share our struggles. Mm-hmm. And, right. I, and I've noticed that people who um, tend to latch on to teaching that has to do with close-knit community, um, especially when they're not finding that in organized religious circles, they immediately think that every gathering of God's people outside of a, an institutional or an organized setting have to start spilling their guts in a gathering concerning their struggles, the things they're challenged with, the problems they have. And not only is that unrealistic, but it's completely unhealthy. And not only is it unhealthy, it's hypocritical because the people who want that from others, they don't do it themselves. My point is, it takes time to get to that place where you trust another person or you trust a group of people enough where you feel safe to share those sorts of things. Yeah, it I, just doesn't happen immediately, and it shouldn't happen immediately. Trust has to be built first. Another level would be sharing together in prayer. And then even another level would be sharing resources with one another. You know, this is where one member of the body of Christ may give money or possessions or resources of another type to another, right? Right. And that's another way the word is used. So my point is that there appears to be levels of koinonia that happen naturally and organically in relationship. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at, you know, the Last Supper, that's a pinnacle moment of koinonia between Jesus and the Twelve. You couldn't have that way back three years prior. They weren't there. They weren't ready for that. The relationships weren't there. It was something that built... You know, and at some point, even Jesus makes the interjection at that point that I no longer call you servants. You're my friends. They didn't start there. So clearly there is there is an organic growth in all of this. And I'm not saying that we're not his children right at the moment that we're we're regenerated and born again. Of course we are. But the growth of that intimacy is something that requires time. And, you know, just like any relationship, you don't start out that way. It requires having experiences together and conversations together and, mm-hmm. you know, all these things. And that takes time. Yeah, absolutely. It would be true among the ecclesia. Yeah, it takes time and it takes an investment, too. And with our 21st century American culture and the way most of us live, it's a sacrifice to invest in that kind of time to develop that kind of koinonia. But that's one of the things that the gospel of the kingdom demands, Right, is that we make the body of Christ, the kingdom community, a priority. So if I can summarize, ecclesia, the word in the New Testament means a meeting, a gathering, an assembly. And the way I've defined ecclesia, referring to the Christian use of it, it's a group of people who gather together regularly, who are sharing life together, and they're all learning to live by the indwelling life of Christ. That's what an ecclesia was in the first century, and hopefully that 
meaning can be recovered for our time, although it's going to take a lot of work and a lot of time for that to actually catch on because the word has been so misused and misunderstood. Koinonia, we said, is is an active, intimate word that refers to communion, fellowship, and sharing. To put a fine point on it, I would say the members of the ecclesia have and know koinonia with one another and with God. Amen. That's a good summation. All right. Very good question. Well, I think we'll end it on that note. Thanks for listening and staying awake the entire time. And we will see you in the next episode. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the Insurgents podcast and give it a five-star review on iTunes. This will help others find it. Also, you can join Frank's unfiltered email list at frankviola.org and receive encouragement, challenges, and insights connected to the gospel of the kingdom. Remember, the insurgence has begun. Don't miss it.